Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years, sometimes single stories, sometimes whole episodes. Keep in mind that years ago, people might have worded things differently than they would today. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, the sixth episode of our second year, it premiered in December of 2010, and it's called Eye of the Beholder. Risk. 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 Wow. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was a little collage up top by the artist known as I Cut People. And the people he was cutting there were the people who have uh, contributed risk themes to us so far. And this is Chancha via Circuito behind me now. Who else? Our theme today is Eye of the Beholder. Stories where different perceptions play some sort of role. And we're going to get started with the wonderful Ryan Paulson, such a sweet guy. His solo shows have gone around the country, gotten all sorts of awards. We call Ryan's story, Save Your Love for Something Real.
Well, I wanted to tell a story about um, this little boy that I used to babysit for. And at this point in the story, he was about four or five, and his name was Peter. So one night, it was, uh, it was around the holidays, and uh, like about this time of year, I had just given him his nightly bath, right? And he gets out of the tub, and, and I hand him his towel, and he wraps it around himself, and, and he looks up at me, and he starts to say something, and I could tell that it had really been weighing on his mind. And he looks up at me, and he says, Ryan, will you tell Santa that I want a red Power Ranger for Christmas? And I wasn't sure if his parents wanted me to encourage, you know, the Santa Claus thing or if they wanted me to discourage it, if I should just say, you know, there's really no Santa Claus or what. So I kind of tried to sidestep the question. I think I said something like, well, yeah, I'll I'll see what I can do, you know, hoping I could just kind of brush it off and, and he would forget about it. But he just looked up at me, like really expectantly. And he paused, just waiting. And I realized that he wanted me to talk to Santa right there and then, you know. Like Santa is this omnipresent being that's everywhere all at once, much like Christians view God, you know, just everywhere all at once. And I should send a prayer heavenward to intercede on Peter's behalf with Santa. And I thought, like, maybe this is going too far. You know, maybe this, he has such a strong impression of, of Santa as being godlike. Maybe this isn't healthy. Maybe I should just say, you know what, Peter? There is no Santa. But then I also thought, like, maybe I'm just really sensitive to this whole Santa being like God thing. Because I grew up in this fundamentalist Christian church. So whenever I... When I see a little kid who, who views Santa as this all-powerful being that he can, you know, um, I know, that he can sort of pray to and that may or may not reward him if he's good, it just it sets off alarm bells. You know, I get flashbacks. Because I think one of the problems that I have with Santa Claus is it's just like, like Jesus, it requires all this faith, right? And the way we talk to kids about Santa is all about belief and faith. Because what's the generic answer when a kid says, you know, is there a Santa Claus? You're supposed to say something like, Santa is real for those who believe in him. You know? Is there there a Father Christmas? Well, you know, there is a Father Christmas for all the people who have the Christmas spirit. You know? It's so much like religion. And I think, if you think about it, Jesus and Santa, they have a lot in common. Like, they both have scrolls in which they keep track of who's been good and bad. They both have beards. They can both fly. I think this is the most interesting one. They're both white men who come from regions where the indigenous people normally have brown skin. In fact, there are so many similarities between Santa and Jesus that I think you could forgive a kid for getting confused. I mean, I can picture a kid being like, wait, did Santa die on the cross? Or was that Jesus? You know? Is Jesus the guy who sneaks down my chimney once a year, or is that Santa? And in that case, the answer is really misleading because you would think that a man who's capable of fasting for 40 days and 40 nights would be a better candidate to stuff himself in a small space once a year. But instead, of course, it's the morbidly obese man. Go figure. Also, people use the same logic sometimes for Santa that they do to believe in Jesus. 
The logic is sort of like, what do you have to lose, right? I remember expressing doubt as a child in Santa and someone using this logic on me. And it goes like this, well, if you do believe in Santa and he doesn't exist, no harm done, right? But if you don't believe in Santa and he does exist, you're screwed because you're not going to get any presents, right? And people use the same thing with religion, like, well, you might as well devote your life to being a fanatical Christian because, I mean, you get it, right? So that's why I think, like, maybe I should just tell Pierre there, there isn't a Santa Claus, but I can't do that. And I know I can't do that because I faced this situation before. I'm terrible at telling kids no, and especially when it comes to Santa. Because when I was uh, 17, I was hired to play Santa Claus at my local mall. Now, uh, I'm pretty young, I think a little young looking for my age, so when I was 17, I looked like I was about 12, right? And I think there's a whole generation of kids in my hometown who went to see Santa Claus that year and went away with the impression that Santa was this 12-year-old kid with some genetic condition that allowed him to grow a white beard. So it's strange that they hired me. I'm, I'm like 50 years shy of, of starting to play that part, right? And I think what's even stranger is that I bothered to apply. You know, like I was 17, I found out they're hiring Santas at the local mall. I was like, oh, that'd be a great job for me. You know, I'll just pedal over to the mall on my tricycle and fill out an application in cram. So I, I get this job, they hire me. And obviously they were really hurting for Santas. And I show up the first day and the manager takes me into this back room and, and you know, we get all the, the gear on, like the fat suit and the robe and everything. And the most, the most disgusting part of, of, of the whole outfit was putting on this beard, which was still sweaty from the Santa who just finished his seven hour shift and had peeled it off. And I can still remember what the smell was like. It was really gross. I thought that in the midst of getting my costume on and getting me ready, this mall manager, that she would, you know, run, run through some of the guidelines, protocol, etiquette, you know, make sure you say this to the kids, don't say this, or whatever. Just give me something, right? But there was really nothing, except just before she kind of shoved me out the door into the main part of the mall, she said, whatever you do, don't promise the kids anything, and kind of like hit me on the back. So I was on my own. And I, I, uh, I go and I sit in this, this, there's like this throne thing, you know, the cheesy like Christmassy display that you have in a, a suburban mall with like a fake fireplace and everything. And I go and I sit there and, and I really don't, I'm just waiting for the kids to come, but I don't know exactly what to say. So the first kid comes up and he, uh, you know, he, he sits on my lap and I say, you know, what do you want? And well, not like that, but you know, <laughs> what do you want? I said, you know, what would you like for Christmas? And he says, uh, I want a snake. And I'm pretty sure that I should discourage this, you know, steer him away from that. Definitely not make him think that Santa's going to bring him a snake, but I don't know quite how to say no. And I, whenever I don't know what to do or, or what to talk about, I ask more questions, which is what I did here. I said, uh, what kind of snake? You know? And he said, a viper. And I was pretty sure that vipers are poisonous and that I should discourage him, you know, ask him if you want a remote control car or something instead. But I didn't know what else to say, so I said, what color viper? And he said, an, an orange viper. And I think all vipers are poisonous, but I'm pretty sure an orange one would be like highly poisonous, right? 
And I'm pretty sure that I should not give him the idea that this is even a possibility, but I don't know what else to say, so I say something like, well, I'll see what I can do. Merry Christmas. And then this other kid comes up to me. And you think that being Santa would be kind of an easy thing, right? Because you just say, ho, 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 you wish people Merry Christmas, ask kids what they want. But the problem is that a little like religion, as kids get older, they start to have a little bit of a crisis of faith, right? And so they start to test you. And they want to know all these things that, that occur to them are not logical. You know, how do you get down the chimney? I don't have a chimney, right? How do you make it around the world in one night? Where did you and Mrs. Claus meet? Which I always say was a singles bar at the North Pole. That sort of thing. <laughs> they have all these questions. <clears throat> and to liken it to the religion thing, again, I get, if you were a, an evangelical Christian and one day you showed up at your local mall and there was a guy there dressed as Jesus calling him the Son of God who said that if you sat on his lap he would give you whatever you wanted, you might have a few questions for him, right? You, want, you might want to metaphorically tug his beard to see if he was the real thing, right? But that's what it's like for these kids. I mean, the person who's like the most powerful person in the world to them is suddenly at their local mall, and they start to think like, you know, is this really him? So this kid sits on my lap and he says, uh, so Santa, where, where are your reindeer? This is a common question. But this is the first time I had it, so I thought, oh, you know, I had to think really quick, and I'm like, oh, ho, 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 I, I parked them on the top of the mall when I, when I got here today. And then he kind of looks around, and he notices something, he said, then what are those over there? And I'd forgotten that behind where I was sitting, there was this big display of, like, plastic reindeer and a sleigh. It was really sad. It looked like Santa was on the decline, you know? He had Alzheimer's, couldn't remember where he parked his sleigh. And then, uh, so a lot of that, a lot of kids would challenge you. But then one day, this little girl comes up to me. And uh, she's very different from all the other kids. She didn't, she didn't speak at first, but she didn't seem particularly shy. She got on my lap, and her mom was right there. And her mom said that this girl was deaf, so she was obviously going to you know, use sign language, and then her mom would translate for me. So she looks up at me, and she had, uh, she had blonde hair, and I think it was pulled back in a little ponytail. And I think she was three or four. And she had big eyes, of course, you know, like, like little kids do. And, but she, hers were even bigger because she had these thick lenses on her glasses, so they were sort of magnified. But she was just, you know, an adorable little kid. And she looks up at me, and she smiles. And she didn't seem intimidated either. She didn't seem shy or intimidated. And then she just gave me this really big smile, and almost like she knew me. And then she signs to her mom, and her mom looks at me and says, she said, Santa, you're so beautiful. And I felt, this is strange, I felt, I felt two things at once. I felt really amazed by the love that a little kid can have for something, right? Like just complete, unfettered, total love for something. It was amazing. And I felt grateful that I could be a part of giving her that joy in that moment. And part of me felt like a complete fraud. Right? Because what kind of a sick charade is this? You know? Like she has real love. Real love for this person who doesn't exist. Who is played by some 17-year-old that looks like a 12-year-old that's getting paid $7 an hour to wear a smelly beard. You know? So part of me wanted to hug her and say, oh, Santa thinks you're beautiful too. And part of me wanted to rip off my sweaty beard and yell, save your love for something real, little girl! 
So there I am, many years later, with Peter in the bathroom. He's got the, you know, the towel on. He's shivering, looking up at me, waiting to see if I will intercede with Santa on his behalf, right? Waiting so expectantly. And I think I should probably discourage this. I don't actually know what specifically I should say. So I do the only thing I can do. I, I bow my head and pray, dear, dear Santa, dear Heavenly Father Christmas, dear omniscient, omnipresent Santa Claus who looks down from the North Pole on all your little children guiding and protecting us. In all your grace and wisdom, please give Peter a red Power Ranger for Christmas. In the name of Dasher, Prancer, and Vixen. Amen. Thank you. Meantime, people are worshiping a new single bar. People are worshiping a new single bar. People are worshiping a women's march. People are worshiping a women's march. People are worshiping sunglasses and orgasms. People are worshiping sunglasses and orgasms. People are worshiping FAO Schwartz. FAO Schwartz. I think every everybody needs something. Anything. anything. It's work or it's, it's something they need. And so, and so people are worshiping worshiping anything, anything. I feel that I have a relationship of friendship with Jesus. I talk to Jesus. I feel that he talks to me. But I don't believe he had any kind of powers different than you or me. He might fulfill the expectations and that he might be real gentle and nice and good and all those things that people like to think he is, <laughs> rather than being a rather complex human being. I think a lot of people would be disappointed if they really could meet Jesus. Do you feel like uh, he's active in your life, that uh, he interacts with you or responds to you? Well, the blessings I used to get, but since they battered me so, it's harder to relate to the faith, you know, uh-huh. the original Christian faith. Well, think about it. Some guy supposedly created this earth, right? And he's all this powerful. Now, if I made something like this, I'd keep an eye on it. If it was that close to being blown to smithereens, I'd do something. Wouldn't you? He's looking at you right now. Are you aware of that? There's your answer. I'm not stupid. I wasn't born yesterday. Thank you, sir. Do you think that he rose from the dead? Uh, um, I haven't really come to a conclusion about that, but I do plan to read into it uh-huh. at some point. Do you think Jesus was the Son of God? I honestly don't care. Uh-huh. I don't. Um, <laughs> I don't care. This is Risk. We heard a collage there by Escape Mechanism called What's Happening. Uh, Escape Mechanism is the uh, pseudonym of John Nelson, who has a wonderful podcast of his own called Some Assembly Required. Then we heard me as a little film student at NYU in 1990, running around New York City asking people who they thought 
Jesus was. Uh, and we're now listening to a song called Inspire Me Forever by Spinning Merkaba. Another something from one of our live shows here in New York. This is the lovely Gemma Clark, who's taken some storytelling training with us. We call Gemma's story, People Will Talk. an article recently which claimed that in order to have a successful relationship you need to pay your partner five compliments for every one critical remark that you make and I I thought that seems like a very high ratio Um, but I think it's probably quite accurate and the reason I think this is because I used to be a model And there's a misconception about models that they all kind of swan around feeling really great about themselves. Um, But actually, the truth is, you know, it's it's a profession that bestows a lot of hang-ups on you because you have your flaws pointed out to you on a very regular basis. So I started modeling when I was 16, and in the course of several years, I was told that I had crooked teeth that my, the left side of my top lip is thinner than the right side. I was told um, that I, I went once on a, a, a casting in Japan and I had a manager who would translate for me. And he, we went to this casting, this, this client looked at my portfolio and looked me up and down and said something to my manager in Japanese and shook his head very solemnly. And as soon as we got outside, I said to my manager, you know, very foolishly, well, what did he say? And my manager said, oh, he's, he's not going to book you because one of your arms is longer than the other one. <laughs> so I spent all night and probably most nights ever since, you know, lying in bed comparing. It's true. One is longer than the other. Uh, you probably noticed. Um... And it's, it's things like that that really stick with you, you know, and, and the compliments, you know, the nice things people say you forget. And, you know, if, if someone would, would, looks at me for a long time, I think, oh, God, they've noticed the arm thing, like, you know, try and look comfortable, um, you know, or someone's romantic, you know, in a romantic sense is sort of looking at my lips going in for a kiss I'm thinking okay they've noticed the asymmetry right (laughs) and so after a few years of this I thought you know this really is enough I need to quit so I became a writer because that way I could sort of hide in a cupboard and no one would look at me Um, and that was lovely for a while Um, and then fate obviously never lets you off the hook that easily A couple of years ago, I was standing outside a pub in London, as you do, and I met the love of my life. And it turns out the love of my life is American and an actor. So life is full of surprises. We dated long distance for a while, and then I moved out to New York to be with him this year. It was a tough decision. And... Everything was wonderful. We're together at last, you know, we're living together. We got engaged and, you know, we were feeling really great about ourselves. And at the same time, his career kind of really started taking off. And he was cast in this new show 
and he was asked to do a lot of public appearances like red carpet type thing and he said to me I you know it'd be great if you would come with me seeing as you know you're going to be my wife and I sort of thought about it and I had this part of my brain that really hated modeling and that part of my brain was kind of saying ah don't do this like this involves cameras and lights and people like stay home stay in your cupboard stay home but then I've got this part of my brain that kind of liked certain aspects of modeling and that part of my brain is going you know put on a nice frock get out there and you know have fun uh so I go with that part of my brain and um we go to the first event and it's it's the opening night of this musical and I've sort of gone very reluctantly and I put on like a, an H&M dress from the back of the wardrobe and my hair's in my face and I'm standing on the red carpet like this. But, you know, sullen teenager. And then I start to warm up a little bit and uh, the next event we go to is this big fashion party and I've been lent a frock, you know, a really long, pretty designer dress and I've had someone do my hair and makeup and... You know, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. And we get on the red carpet and I'm like, yeah, I'm back. <laughs> you know, throwing some real shapes out there and, you know, really feeling great. Um, and uh, I've forgotten all the negatives, like just feeling like, wow, you know, here we are, we're engaged, we're on the red carpet, like, you know. And um, so we're swept along. And my fiance comes home one day and he says, oh, you know, I've been sent the link to these fan pages and they love you. And I'm like, what? He says, you know, they love you. You, you really need to check them out because it's gonna, you know, it's really gonna make you feel great. You need to have a look. And I'm like, hmm. And there's the part of my brain that's going, really? You're gonna look at message boards? <laughs> um, and then there's the part of my brain that's going, they love me. They love me. And obviously I go with that part of my brain. We start looking and they love me. The, um, the fans are putting things like, oh, you know, she looks lovely here. Look at this picture of her. And they've, they've put all these different pictures of us from the red carpet. You know, there's even one like of my head from the back. And it's like, here's her head from the back. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, great, you know, weird, but great. Um, so we keep scrolling down. And uh, then the tone starts to change slightly. And there's a comment. Well, I think they kind of look like brother and sister. Isn't that creepy? <laughs> My fiance and I look at each other. <laughs> Nervous laughter. Um, but we keep scrolling because, you know, it's just one comment. And then there's a picture of me in the ball gown and a comment that says, I think she kind of looks like his aunt in this picture. Ooh. <laughs> and my fiance can see where this is going. So he's wrestling the laptop away slightly. And I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> I need to see, you know, I need to know what's next. Uh, and the next one is a picture of me in the H&M dress. And it says, well, I think she kind of looks like a hooker in this dress. <laughs> And by this time, my fiance is really going for it, like really trying to grapple the laptop away. And I throw him off and I'm like, no, you know, because I need to see. And I scroll on a little bit further. And the next comment is, well, I think she looks lovely for a woman in her 40s. 
and it's over. I mean, I am devastated. <laughs> you know, there's this scene of total carnage. My fiance sitting on the floor, head in his hands, just going, oh my God, I can't believe I've let this in here. And I'm like, I know, what were you thinking? Um, and, you know, it's just horrible. I just, I just feel like all these negative things have come back. I've forgotten all the positive things that came at the start. And I'm just thinking, oh God, you know, we've been going to these events and people have been looking at us and they've been thinking, oh, Oh, look, there's so-and-so, and that must be his 40-year-old hooker aunt. Um, you know, and it's, it's just devastating. And for about 24 hours, I just feel really rubbish. And then I had this epiphany, and I thought, I have wasted so much of my life you know, worrying about what I look like. And all this time, there have been so many people out there willing to worry about it for me. Thank you. <laughs>was one of those perfect afternoons in June. It was a Sunday, which was already fabulous because I was working the other six days and most of the time at a job I hated. So Sunday was my day of personal freedom. The chill had finally left the air, but it wasn't so hot that you needed air conditioning. So all I had to do was walk into the bedroom, open the window, sit down on the futon couch and just breathe. And the air was incredibly sweet. And I sat there and I thought to myself, this is really amazing. New York is never this calm. I really must remember this and really take note of it. And at a certain point I was so inspired, I picked up a pen and a notebook and I started to write about how great it was. And even that started to feel intrusive. So I put down the writing stuff and I just sat there and I said, no, I'm going to breathe and relish this. And then it started. The soprano downstairs had begun to practice. Now, she was an unusual soprano. Not in that she practiced, but in that she tended to favor the music of these sort of modern classical composers, you know, people like Philip Glass, John Cage. This is the kind of music that hovers for a long time on one note. And if it goes up the scale, it does it at almost imperceptible intervals, kind of like... And this she would punctuate every once in a while with very classic soprano stuff like trills. And I'm starting to get upset. And I'm starting to feel the walls of my small bedroom starting to close in. And I start thinking, oh my God, she's going to ruin this perfect day. What do I do? So I thought, well, do I go out? And then I got angry because I thought, no, I was supposed to spend this day in my apartment. See, I'm an introvert. I've taken personality tests that have borne this out. And one of the hallmarks, according to the Myers-Briggs type indicator, is that we recharge our personal batteries by spending quiet time alone. 
and today I had determined I was going to recharge my personal batteries before starting another horrible work week. So I start thinking, what can I do? She's going on, and I'm thinking, um, I'll go down and ask her to stop. And then I think, on what grounds? It's not like it's the middle of the night. And then I thought, worse, what if she says no? Then what do I do? I figure then I have two choices. Either I hang my head in shame and slink back up the stairs, or I start get into this horrible screaming fight with her and create all this bad blood in the apartment building. I didn't want to do that either. So I start to think, all right, maybe I'll write her an anonymous note and slip it under the door. But then I thought, what if she doesn't see or hear the note? Or worse, what if she sees it and just chooses to ignore it? So then I sit down and I think, okay, maybe she'll stop. And she didn't. And now I'm starting to get resentful. I'm starting to think, who the hell does she think she is? She's taking this perfect landscape of a day and she is assaulting it with these notes. She's not even thinking of anyone else. I mean, it's, it's so incredibly inconsiderate. I was thinking... People might want to enjoy themselves. They might want to enjoy this quiet. And this never enters her mind. She's just going to sing no matter what. She's got to sing. She sings. And I thought, that's really awful. I sing at home, too. But when I do it, I have the decency to keep the window closed. And if I open it even just a little bit, I sing very, very quietly. And if I get the urge to really belt out a big, fat note, I sing into a pillow. And that, I thought, dear neighbor, is the difference between you and me. When I was a kid, I had an almost aching need to express myself. If there was something I didn't understand, I would ask as many questions as I needed to ask in order to clear up the confusion. I often did this in movie theaters throughout the film. I'd be sitting next to my father in some kind of action-adventure movie, and I'd keep asking things like, that guy with the black hair, is he the same as the bad guy in the other scene, the guy with the gun? Because they kind of look alike, but they talk a little bit different. And that briefcase that the good guy dropped out the window, was that the same briefcase that the other guy in the green suit was just carrying? Because it looked like the same kind of briefcase, but the color seemed slightly different, but that might have just been the light. And my father would finally say, will you just watch the movie? Now, if somebody asked me a question, I would talk for as long as I needed to talk until I felt the question was fully answered. There were times when my mother took me to work with her. And one of her colleagues would see me and out of politeness would smile and say, Larry, how are you? And I would take a deep breath and I'd say, well, I was home for five days with the flu and I had a pretty high temperature. It was like 105 degrees and it was really sweating a lot. And it really hung on. Like as if yesterday it was only down to about 100. But today there was no fever. But my mother didn't think I should go to school yet just in case I would suffer a relapse or in case I might infect other kids. But she didn't think that I needed to stay home because I didn't have a fever. So she decided to get me out of school. But she took me with her to work, which is why you see me here today. And then I'd go on my merry way, walking through the office, and inevitably I'd run into someone else who would smile and say, Larry, how are you? And I'd take a deep breath and start the whole thing again. Well, I was home with the flu for five days, or the 105, and finally my mother, after hearing this four or five times, would pull me aside and mutter, just say fine, thank you. See, I was taught I shouldn't push myself on other people. They may not be ready for me. They have problems of their own. They have lives of their own. They have thoughts of their own. And for me to talk too much about myself was actually considered an act of selfishness. I was taught to count the number of times I said the word I 
when I spoke. Half an hour later, the soprano was still at it. Now I'm getting desperate. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe I'll go up to the window and I'll shut it with such a force that the noise will communicate my anger and that might at least get her to stop. And even in my rage, I thought to myself, well, that's terribly passive-aggressive and I might damage the window. So I went back and I sat down and I just tried to make peace with it. And she hit one more of those, and I said, the hell with it. And I ran up to the window and I lift up my arms and I'm just about to bring down the window and some guy across the way suddenly yells, shut the fuck up! And she stopped. And very quietly, I heard her window close. And the quiet was mystical. It was bigger than before. It was more beautiful than before. This was a gift that someone had just wrapped up and handed to me. And I sat back down on the couch and I started to breathe and feel tremendously grateful. And then I started to think about her downstairs. And I pictured her singing very quietly, or worse, into a pillow. And now I found myself getting mad at the guy across the way. And I thought what I really wanted to do was go back up there and yell to him, sorry, man, she has to sing. We have to sing. was the wonderful Larry Rosen we just heard from doing a story we call We Have to Sing. Larry teaches and directs at the People's Improv Theater. He does outreach for the moth. We love Larry. This is Ghost Prom behind me now. (laughs) G-O-S-P-R-O-M. We have one more story from our live shows up here in New York. Ms. Michelle Walson. Michelle is also a writer and a director for Stage and Screen. We call her story The Family. So I want to tell you about uh, one of my best friends. Uh, He was one of my best friends when I was in middle school. His name was Bobby. He was a cute little kid. He had brown hair and brown eyes, and he kind of reminded me of Kevin Arnold from The Wonder Years, you know, the Fred Savage character. When we were in middle school together, I had a little bit of a crush on him, and I like to imagine that I was kind of the Winnie Cooper to his Kevin, you know, the the girl next door with the long brown hair who Kevin has a crush on. 
But really, probably to Bobby, I was more like the Paul Pfeiffer character, kind of the like dorky best friend who he just liked to talk to. So uh, Bobby was a really interesting kid. He had some very particular interests and they were interests that if he had them today, he would probably get labeled as a potential school shooter. Um, He was really into military history and weapons and guns and anything dealing with war, particularly World War II and the Nazis. And uh, one of his favorite things to do after school was to uh, take his brother's G.I. Joe figures and tie them to Roman candles and then see what happened when he lit it on fire. So that was Bobby. And, you know, I didn't really share many of his interests. (laughs) Um, But I think that uh, the reason why we became such good friends was we had very similar personalities. Uh, We both came from families where... The dynamic was kind of everyone talked over each other and you had to be louder and more entertaining to even be heard. And so Bobby and I were both like super loud, talkative kids. And I think we were both used to being told to be quiet a lot and to let uh, give other people a chance to talk. But when we were together, we didn't have to hold back. We had kind of like met our conversational match. And so uh, he was on my school bus every morning on the trip to school and then every afternoon on the trip home, we would just sort of talk nonstop and it was really fun. So I should tell you that the school that Bobby and I went to was a little bit different. We grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania and we went to a small private school and it was different because it was really small. There were only 12 kids in our eighth grade class and there were four boys and eight girls. So, uh, you know, when you have only 12 kids in your class, even in middle school, when cliques are a big thing, you can't really have cliques because um, there's really only like one or two of each type of kid. Like, like in my class, we had a jock. Um, We had a theater kid, you know. So people didn't really like group up by interest and like exclude each other at the lunch table or anything like that. Um, But there was still kind of a sense of like pecking order in my class. I would say that out of the four boys, three out of the four boys were kind of the cool boys. And out of the eight girls, about half were considered cool and half were kind of not as cool. Now I actually was in the cool group of girls, but I would say I was number four out of the four girls. (laughs) Like that was kind of where I stood in the pecking order. Okay, so this brings me to kind of uh, what this story is really about, which is this one day in eighth grade, we were all in art class, and I think we were uh, firing our clay pots in the kiln that day, and so we were all sort of like gathered around, or maybe they'd already been fired and the teacher was taking them out, I don't know, but I remember a kiln, and uh, this one girl in my class, Heather, got annoyed with this guy, Scott, who was kind of teasing her the whole class, And I think she stepped on his foot or kicked him in the shin or something. And he got mad and he said to her, hey, you mess with me, you mess with the whole family. Now I have no idea where he got this line from. I guess it's a movie somewhere. But my friend Bobby thought this was the greatest line ever. He proceeded to like repeat it over and over again in various contexts throughout the day. He took it to mean that kind of all the guys in our class would like back each other up if anyone tried to mess with them. Um, You mess with me, you mess with the whole family. The next day, this mushroomed into Bobby's inspiration for a super exclusive club that he started in our eighth grade class called The Family. 
came to school with a printout of this F symbol that kind of looked like the anarchy symbol. And, um, and he cut up these pieces of paper and had tape with him and everything. And he distributed them to all the guys in the class, even the less cool guy. And they all taped these Fs to their notebooks. And, and that signified that they were in the family. So at first it was just the boys. And they basically used this, it was almost like a fight club for eighth graders. Like there were two things that they were known for doing. One was they made seventh grade boys salute them in the hallways. And it was kind of like a close-fisted Heil Hitler, like... And then uh, the other thing they did was they had what they called cage fights on the playground, where they would take two field hockey goals, push them together, and then they would round up two seventh-grade boys and throw them in the, in the cage <laughs> and see what happened. Which begs the question, where were the teachers at my school? <laughs> but I do remember this happening. That, you know, so the boys kind of had their fun for one day. Then the next day, the family started to expand. And Bobby, who was the clear ringleader of the family, started to let uh, some of the girls into the family. And soon the family became just kind of a status symbol. And like, it really became the business of the family was basically just about determining who was in the family and who was out of the family. Um, and so uh, that day I go to lunch and I go to sit down at my normal lunch table with um, my best friends, Kathy, Katrina, and Naomi, numbers one, two, and three. And also the three cool boys, um, Bobby, Robert, and Scott. I go to sit down at the table and Bobby stops me and he said, this is a closed meeting of the family. Only members of the family can sit here today. And so it became apparent to me that I wasn't in the family and it was also news to me that my girlfriends were in the family. I was really dejected and I kind of didn't know what to do and so I just sort of turned around and found another table to sit at with the other like four kids in my class. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I was really, really hurt and bummed and confused. I kind of like could barely eat my lunch that day and just sort of like sat there and sulked and kind of tried to like read lips and see what they were talking about. So immediately after lunch, we used to have break, which was sort of like a 15 minute mini recess for eighth graders. Usually at break, I would go and hang out on this one little jungle gym with my friends and we would just sit there and like eat junk food and gossip. But this day when I went out to the playground for a break, I had noticed that the family had already commandeered that jungle gym as their headquarters for break at that day. And they were sort of all huddled together and whispering again. And once again, I was sort of on the outside and I was kind of just like, didn't know what to do with myself, literally just like wandered around the playground. I kind of felt like Charlie Brown and like, like when he like hangs his head and it's really sad. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I was really upset, but I was also kind of determined that I wanted into the family and I was going to find a way in. The end of the school day came and I got an idea to use my only power position at my school to my advantage. So I happened to be the eighth grade class treasurer because I was responsible with money. <laughs> And as the class treasurer, I ran our school candy store, which opened at the end of the school day, kind of in this 15 minute period before the buses came to pick kids up. And I sold gummy worms and peppermint patties, gobstoppers, Snickers, Kit Kats. And I would take requests when I would make the candy orders and always kept it really stocked. And it was a fun position. And one thing that I used to do as treasurer was occasionally if my friends didn't have the cash on the day that they wanted their candy, I might grant some people who I was close friends with some credit here and there. And 
And so when Bobby came to get his candy that day, you know, he went to pay and I said, Bob, you know, if you let me into the family, I'll give you that for free today. And in fact, I'll give you credit for the rest of the week if you want. And Bobby really took offense and he said, no, Michelle, you can't bribe your way into the family. <laughs> okay, so that didn't work. So then we had the, the bus ride home together. So he's, he's eating his candy on the bus ride home that he paid for. And I just kind of start badgering him about, you know, why won't he let me in? I thought we were good friends and this and that. And he says, you know, it's not just up to me. If it were just up to me, I would probably let you in. But, um, you know, I have to consult with other people and... I mean, I don't know, I'm not promising anything, but I'll see what I can do. So I went home that night and I, I wasn't really holding out much hope. And uh, usually I was a really talkative kid when I came home from school and I was quiet that night because I was upset and my mom eventually wormed it out of me. I confessed to her that I was upset because Bobby had started this club called The Family and he wouldn't let me in. The next morning, I'm on the school bus going to school. We go, we pick up Bobby. And Bobby gets on the bus, he sits by me, and he says, well, we've decided to let you into the family, but you need to uh, go through the initiation process first. And I said, well, what's the initiation? And he said, well, to just show that you're serious about this and you'd be loyal to the family, you need to endure one minute of Indian burns. So if you don't know what Indian burns are, it's like someone takes your forearm and like twists it, twists the skin back and forth until your arm gets red. And this was like... I don't know, something that Bobby enjoyed doing to people, I guess, <laughs> given his interests in, like, war and torture and things. Um, so, but I didn't care. I was like, yes, yes, I'll do it. Give me the Indian burns. So right there on the school bus on the way to school, he gave me my one minute of Indian burns while his brother timed it on his little Casio watch. And uh, after I was done, my arm was red and it hurt, but I was like so happy. I was in the family now and I was gonna have a great day at school. I was so excited to like get the F to put on my notebooks and I was looking forward to lunch that day. I was looking forward to break, like it was gonna be a great day. We get to school, we go to our first period class, which was usually math class, but our math teacher wasn't there. Instead, it was Mrs. Mowry, our science teacher, who was also the head of the middle school. And she looked pretty mad and she sat us all down and she said, you know, it's come to my attention that a gang has formed in the eighth grade class. <laughs> and we have a zero tolerance policy about this at our school. And so this gang needs to stop immediately. I want to know who started this and who has been making the younger kids salute them in the hallways and fight in the field hockey goals on the playground. <laughs> And so, at this point in time, I was a newly initiated member of the family. And so I, Bobby and I, who were the most vocal members of our class, we just started arguing on behalf of the family. Uh, basically, they can't tell us who to be friends with. <laughs> uh, this is a free country, and you know, it's not that big of a deal. And then when that logic didn't really work, we started blaming it all on this other kid in our class, Robert, who was absent that day um, because his parents had pulled him out of school early to go on a family vacation to Disney World. So we scapegoated Robert, and, uh, and that was pretty much that. We went on with the rest of the school day, but the family was forbidden from then on. And uh, so basically the day that I got into the family uh, was the day the family got busted up, and uh, I was in it for probably like 45 minutes. Um, 
But, you know, at the end of that day, school bus ride home, Bobby turns to me and he says, you know, I'm so glad that I let you into the family when I did because you're really good at arguing and you were a great asset in that meeting. <laughs> um, so that made me happy. I got home that day and I discovered that it was my mother who had called Mrs. Mowry and tipped her off about the family because I was so upset about it the day before. So Bobby thought that I was one of the people who helped keep the family out of trouble, but really I was the reason why we got busted in the first place. I'm actually still friends with Bobby till this day. He actually still does not know that my mom is the one who got the family busted, <laughs> at least unless he listens to this podcast. <laughs> And Bobby, uh, nowadays, he's a real estate attorney, and it just so happens that I had a crisis situation with my apartment recently, and I needed some uh, legal help. So I called up Bobby, and I explained my situation. I said, Bob, can you help me? I really need help on this. And he said, Michelle, of course I'll help you. If someone messes with you, they mess with the whole family. <laughs> See, at first, the magical mystery tour was that we would be cowboys or gypsies or pirates. And every, every day it was to wear a different role so that we would get um, more out of ourselves. Bit by bit, the family became one with Manson. One of his things was to stop you during the day and he'd put your palms up to his and then he'd move them in any direction that he could. Or he'd make a series of faces and then you were supposed to try to keep up with them. And the whole thing was always geared toward um, just complete mirroring of, of him. Well, that's our show, folks. At least I'm pretty sure this is where Charlie would have wanted me to end it. This is Superbus behind me now. And this was Risk. And don't forget what this wizard of a man once said about Risk. What kind of world where ugliness is the norm and beauty the deviation from that norm? You want an answer? The answer is, it doesn't make any difference. Because the old saying happens to be true. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs>